HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Meet and 3 is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull. It attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade, from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that's him. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. Welcome, welcome back to the studio, buddy. Thanks. It's good to be back. I know. I took a little hiatus. It's fun to be back in here. Yeah, man. Didn't get my weekly dose of uh, pizza for a little while there. Spending well, a little... Uh, Little little lackluster. Uh, yeah, life's always better with pizza, especially from Roberta's, and especially on a day like today. Gorgeous outside. Oh my god, it's beautiful. We're finally over. I think uh, our don't, very short-lived. Don't say, don't say that. Don't say that, man. You're gonna fucking jinx it. It's our, gonna come back. Our very short-lived, quote unquote, spring, which was just a bunch of fifty-degree raining days. <laughs> um, but when they we jump, we're jumping like kind of right into summer. It's like eighty degrees out there. Yeah, uh, it's all sweaty in the studio. New York style. No time to wait. Yeah, Gotta move on to the next thing. It's time. It's time. Throw away your sweater. Bring out the shorts. I know, right? It's a, it's a, that, that last couple of weeks was that time of year where it's like you leave the house with a jacket on, but then you get outside and it's too hot for it. But then later that night it's too cold to be without it. It's I hate that. Yeah. Whatever. The weather. Everybody's talking about it. Nobody's doing anything about it. But um. Yeah. Um, well, listen, man. Uh, I want to jump right into the guest today because this guy has a lot to say. Every time I'm around him, I learn something from him, uh, and he talks fast and he talks smart. So. Uh, today's guest has been uh, helping to shape the beverage industry for over 40 years, uh, uh, getting his start in restaurants. He's gone on to be a writer, consultant, educator, lecturer. He's particularly known for pioneering work in sherry, Spanish and Greek wines, sake, gin, and currently in agave spirits, and more we're going to talk about on the show. Uh, he's opened dozens and dozens of restaurants. Best bar mentor at Tales of the Cocktail 2012. Please welcome to the studio, Steve Olson. Wow. What an intro. Thank you. I don't know how I'm going to live up to that. <laughs> uh, I got a feeling you're going to do just oh, fine. Okay. Um, so how are you, buddy? Oh, I'm fantastic. Are you kidding me? You're talking about the spring weather. I rode my bike over the Williamsburg Bridge to come out and see you guys. I'm sitting at Roberta's. It is the most gorgeous day on the planet, and life is good. Life is good. Life is really good. You have always got a lot of stuff on your plate. Um, I like do. Even from your, your beginnings, you know, you were at Gramercy Tavern when it opened. Um, I did that opening with Danny and Tom. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite a program. Still is. Still is. 25 years this year. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah exactly. 25th anniversary in July. Unbelievable. It's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a statement. You know, it, it's really interesting because when we did it, we didn't, we didn't set out 
to make a statement. That wasn't really the idea. <laughs> the idea was to create the, the best restaurant we possibly could. But at that time, the idea of getting four stars or, or you know, a Michelin three star, whatever, meant you had to be French and it had to be very formal. And that to us meant pretentious and stuffy. And we just said, what if we could do that kind of food and do that kind of service and make it that professional, but just be nice to people? Just be kind. Just make people feel good. Make everybody want to sit there longer than they're supposed to. You know, right. like make <laughs> tables hard to turn and sure. maybe not even need to turn them if we could do it. And, and we did it in every way we possibly could just by being nice and, you know, changing the, the paradigm about how wines were priced and changing the way we thought about cocktails and changing the way we thought about flights and tasting. And, and it wasn't, like I said, we didn't set out to do anything revolutionary. We just tried to do what, you know what we did? We sat down every week and talked about what would we want if we went into a restaurant? Like, if we could have it our way, what would that be? And that's what we tried to do. I yeah. think that's where that's where the best things come from, is people not trying to set out being the best, just trying to say, like, okay, I want this thing, and it doesn't exist yet, so I'm going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it was. It was that feeling, too. And it wasn't, it wasn't to make it because it hadn't been made. It was to make it because we wanted to enjoy it. And we figured if we wanted it, had to be people out there that wanted the same thing. It sure, was like you, cheese. You build yourself a clubhouse and then people want to get in the club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, if, if, if Gramercy Tavern is a clubhouse, that's a clubhouse I want to hang out in. Yeah, man, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went on from there to do, I mean, just honestly, a million things. Uh, well, I didn't I, even mention in your intro, you're a your founding member, member of BAR. Beverage uh, so Alcohol Resource. So you're an educator. Yep. Um, you you drink and educate and spin the gospel about all manner of wines and sake, and now currently you're helming mezcal. I basically have the greatest job in the world, and I yeah no arguments <laughs> no arguments at this table. I uh, I worked really hard to make that job, and I work every day really hard to keep that job. But my job basically is I drink for a living, and then I share with other people what I learned by drinking, and I share with people. I try to empower people with the with the confidence, not with the tools, because everybody has them, but with the confidence and, and the, the protocol, if you will, for them to be better tasters. And, and more importantly, just to trust your own palate. Just to say, I like it, I don't like it. I don't care what other people say, this works for me, this doesn't work for me. I never tell people what to drink, but instead I, I try to teach them how to make those decisions themselves. Mm -hmm. So then when they taste it, they can decide whether or not they like it. And you know, all the things you mentioned and many more, First of all, I did start in the restaurant business, and I still am in the restaurant business, yeah. and I will always be in the restaurant business. I started in the kitchen, like you did. Um, I started at my first foray out into the front. I, I knew I belonged out there making people happy because um, I share something that a lot of people listening to this show probably feel and maybe haven't articulated yet or figured out, but there's a whole bunch of us out here that have this kind of sick need to make people happy yeah it's like mm -hmm. you live for me and and i know for you guys we live our entire lives with this idea that we're only happy if the people around us are happy so how do we do that how do i make people happy i do it by sharing the cool stuff that i find and as a very curious guy i mean i i got into wine and spirits originally because the more i learned the more i realized i didn't know and I found that fascinating. And as an academic and as a fanatic student and reader and studier and researcher, I just thought, what a cool thing. No matter how much I learn, there's more. And every time I turn the corner, there's more. And every time, every day, every wine in your cellar is evolving and changing. Every day I find you know, a new soil type, a new denomination of origin, a place that needs a denomination that hasn't right. even thought about it yet, a new spirit that's being consumed in some godforsaken place that nobody's ever been or that we just haven't been to yet or it just hasn't been shared or people haven't respected it. And so all of the things that I've gravitated towards over the years have been things that I thought were really cool, that I loved, that I wanted to share with people. And it wasn't really any more than that. And that evolved into this crazy-ass career that I have now. <laughs> so. Well, I feel like you, you, got to the, you, got to the, you got to that conclusion. You wanted to learn about this stuff, and you wanted to share this stuff. And then, 
oh look, people are willing to pay me to do that. Like that's the that's where everything comes. That's where everything gels, right? Yeah, yeah. Where you get to the place where you say, and like, it goes way back. I yeah. mean, to, to the very even when I was still running restaurants before I, Gramercy Tavern was the last restaurant where I actually worked the floor. All, every day, you know? I mean, after that, I opened many, many restaurants, but it was always on a consulting basis. And I might even work there for a year, but it was always, a, you know, for a while to get it up and running, get the staff trained, get everybody flowing, and then move to the next thing. And, I mean, according to Kate, I have now opened something like 48 restaurants. I lost track a long sure. time ago, but <laughs> bars and restaurants. But mm-hmm. to me, well, like with you, I mean, I come from the, the restaurant side. I come from the food side. So... To me, food and beverage always go together. I can't do one without the other. I can't eat without a drink, and I can't drink without food. So everything I've ever opened has always been an expression of both. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the symbiotic relationship between the two, how you know, one begets the other. You, you're happier having one. And, and so at the very, very beginning, I started teaching wine and spirits classes this is going way back, back in the 80s. <laughs> I was running a restaurant and I realized, I, I used to work in television and I used to uh, work on in the theater. And I was doing both full-time. So I'm working in theater full-time. I'm teaching acting classes to models. I'm working at a television station and I'm running a five-star, five-diamond Relais Chateau French restaurant with a grand award-winning wine list. Holy right? shit. I was 23 <laughs> years old and I was out of my mind. Punching above now, weight, buddy. Well, it's always been like that for me. But, I, you know, 23, what, what am I even thinking? And I almost died. You know, I had a terrible car accident. I was told I'd never walk again. I went through this whole thing. And I had this moment and I realized that I couldn't keep doing all this stuff. And when I had to actually make the decision, which, what was I going to do? It was such an easy decision because in the restaurant business, I could be producer, director, actor. If I wanted to be a star, I could, but that was never important to me. I could design everything. And most important, I could write the script. And to me, that was the key. So once I made that decision that I was going to walk away from the theater and, the, and television, the decision was I would use the restaurant as my byline to get me back there one day because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I knew to do that, I had to write, which I love to write, so I started writing articles. But before I started writing articles, I said to, do, to, to have the credibility to put something on paper because it's permanent, I need to know more. So I started teaching. You're saying, well, wait a minute, you can't teach if you don't know. Well, the way I look at teaching, and I've always been a teacher, my whole family's teachers. My father was a writer of over 200 books and was a college professor. My sister is a high school teacher. My other sister lives in Italy and teaches in schools there. I mean, my brother is a ski instructor. Everybody in my family teaches in some way. And to me, being a teacher, there are a lot of things that I could share with you about my my attitude about teaching, but you have to know everything there is to know about a subject. So you just dig, 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 research, research, research. And, and then you have to have compelling information that other people maybe don't have. But the key is this, you can't teach everything. So once you know everything, the art of being a teacher is not so much figuring out what you say, but figuring out what you leave out, what you don't say. What is the most important thing that you need to know about this subject? What are the things that are actually valuable to you depending on what you do for a living? If, you're, if I'm teaching bartenders or sommeliers or waiters or all of the above, I have to teach them things they can use with their customers, what they, they can use in the restaurant. They can use not to take a test, but to communicate with their guest, right? So what I did is I, I would take a subject and just exhaustively research it, then teach it to my captains, my dining room captains, and my waiters, and my bartenders, and my sommeliers. And when I taught it, it would force me to come up with this, with this way of sharing that would empower them. And I, I, I really liked it. I started getting good at it, and we did it every week. There was a mandatory three-hour training at my restaurant every single week that every single service person had to come to. And every week I would do a different subject. Sometimes I'd do two subjects in, or three even in that section. And at that time, you have to realize in the 80s, we didn't have books. I mean, we had books. (laughs) We even had libraries. Yeah, yeah, the resources weren't there. (laughs) What we didn't have at that time, there were no bartending books except the old ones. 
There were no wine books except, you know, Hugh Johnson. Jancis Robinson was just coming out with her books at that time. We had nothing to work with. Alexis Lachine was our Bible, that and Hugh Johnson. So the only way to get the research was to go there. You just had to go and stand in the dirt. You stand in the dirt, you work crush, you work in the vineyards, you work in the wineries, you work at the distilleries, and you learn it from the people who do it. Right. And that's what I did. And then I would bring that back to my classes, and then I would bring that back to my articles. And then one day, Food & Wine magazine came to our restaurant. They picked our chef as Food & Wine Top 10 Best New Chefs. This is in 1989. And, the, and asked me if I would be a speaker in Aspen at the Food & Wine Classic. And that was, that was it. <laughs> I got on the national stage once, and I never let go. Yeah, well, you had all that yeah. practice from doing weekly classes. You had all those articles you had written, a wealth of information. And at that point, I'd started doing consumer classes as well. So on Monday nights, once a week, we were closed on Mondays. When I opened Christopher's with Christopher Gross in Phoenix, we were closed on Monday nights in the formal dining room. We were open in the bistro. We had two restaurants working out of one kitchen. It was amazing. And Chris and I would do a wine, spirits, food matching dinner for the public. And they would come in and they could, you know, sit and enjoy and learn from us. And then they could buy whatever the wines were that they liked because we had a, that kind of a license. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that in those days. And they could load up their car with cases of wine and take it home if they wanted to, if they tasted something they really loved. And we weren't in, we weren't there to sell them wine. We were there to teach about wine, but if they wanted it. And then we would work with local, there was a local um, wine shop just up the street and they would carry everything we had in our place so that if they wanted to work with them and we would collaborate that way and so forth. And so at that point, I was developing a lot of experience in this training. And you know, when I moved back to New York in 1992, three, whatever it was, I moved back to New York City after opening the Mayflower Inn up in Washington, Connecticut, and uh, did the relaunch of the Oyster Bar, Grand Central Station, believe it or not. Yep. That big wine bar in the back and stuff, and then started working on Gramercy Tavern with Danny and Tom. And when I came back to the city, um, I was all, I had won a big sommelier competition and was at the advanced level of my master sommelier at that point and met all those guys and, and was working in all these different areas. And I was asked to do a lot of educational things in New York. And I was off and running on my career when Danny and Tom um, and I sat down on with the idea of Gramercy Tavern. I said, you know, one more. <laughs> this one's too important. I, right. I, these guys are amazing and I want to work with them. And, and so we did that. Um, and then about a year after it opened, then I went back into my consulting and education, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So, and, and you mentioned Beverage Alcohol Resource. Bar was, you know, is a collaboration. It's, it's Dale DeGroff, Paul Packle, uh, Dave Wondrich, Doug Frost, and Andy Seymour, all names that people listening to this probably know. They're all my yep. best friends in the world. And, yep. and all these guys, we all sat down. Uh, Andy was my partner at AK Wine Geek at the time. And we all sat down and said, you know, before we get any older, we, we need a way to give back. And Doug and I, you might remember, we had a, the first ever spirits education program back in the 90s. We, we worked with, with Seagram's. We created the Sterling School of Service and Hospitality Spirits Program. Yeah. And Doug and I, um, it was Evan Goldstein, Master Sommelier, one of our dear friends, who, who brought this to Seagram's. He was with Seagram's at the time. They had the wine program, and he thought, we should do spirits, and he, you guys are the guys. He fooled us. He called Doug and told him that I'd committed. He called me and told me that <laughs> Doug had committed. He knew we were best friends and that we already were working together on other projects. And so, of course, we called each other. Hey, are you doing this thing? And it's like, how do you say no to that opportunity? Yeah. And we took it around the world. And we would do these one-day certification programs for bartenders, and it was all about empowering them with the ability to taste thinking about spirits differently, blind tasting spirits and so forth, like we do with wine, yeah. uh, matching it with food, thinking about cocktail programs. In those days, in the early 90s, this wasn't happening at all, but we told them it was. We told bartenders, no, we're seeing this all around the country. And of course we weren't, but we wanted to. And we figured if we told enough bartenders, then that it'll they happen. Would, yeah. it would happen. You'll create it yourself. Well, and you had Dale, you know, at the Rainbow Room and you had places like Bix in San Francisco and people were doing, we had, we were using all fresh juice in our cocktails and, right. you know, there were people doing it all over the country, but they were isolated pockets. And we wanted bartenders to think, no, this is the wave of the future. 
And it was, as it turned out. So in, 19, or in 2005, the group of us I just named all got together and said, it's time to give back. But we don't want to just regurgitate the garbage that's been in these books that have existed forever. We, you know, Dave, as a fanatic, as you know, you know, crazy historical researcher, a PhD as a history professor, um, at first we all thought, you know, you think you know so much about this. You never even bartended. You don't work in our business. We know all this stuff. We've been teaching this forever. And then he would tell us what he found and show us his shit right before he came out with Imbibe, you know. He was working on Imbibe when we were doing this. We were like, where do you find that stuff? Who are you? <laughs> and the thing about Dave that was amazing, is, is amazing, is that Dave ruined every story that we were telling. Yeah. But it was by, great by, because... By sprinkling them full of facts. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then he came back with the truth, right. which is the story you want to tell. And of course, it's always more compelling when you know it's really true and it's not just the, the stuff of legend yeah. that has been passed down from generation to generation and evolved into God knows what. And Imbibe really started to change things. And at that time, we decided we would create a manual that would be absolutely cutting edge. That We did the research ourselves and dug way, way, way deep. And we wouldn't put it out there if it wasn't cutting edge. And then it's like a 400-page manual, you know, and yep. it's... Um, you know, you study, you have to get to the point, you put in your application, and we take 65 students a year, and we've been doing it ever since. It's our, I don't even know how many years that is, 14 years now? This yeah. will be our 15th year that we're doing this. And of course, along the way, a few years in, uh, Pernod Ricard came to us and asked us if we could help them with an educational program. And at the time, we really needed an intermediate class. We needed a prerequisite to get to bar and train people and, and not everybody needs bar five day. I mean, it's, I, I should be clear, it's not a bartending school. If anybody's out there listening and wants to become a bartender, we all want you to become bartenders. But there are other ways to get there. The bar five day is like a finishing school for great bartenders. Agreed. Like when, when you go to bar five day, you go there because you know that this is your craft, you've chosen it, and you want to take it to the highest level. And so you work your ass off to get in it. You work your ass off to survive through it, and then you work your ass off to pass the exams and, and get it. And when you get that certification, it basically is the six of us saying, this person can work in any cocktail bar in the world. Yeah. You know, if you go and apply for a job, they go, oh, well, you have six references right here. That's basically the way it works. So, yeah. um, And it started that way. We brought in... You know, when we first started the school, we went to people that were our students or that were our favorite bartenders and said, would you sit in this class and just give us your feedback and, you know, go for it? I mean, I'll never forget our, our third class, second class, third class. You know, I'm looking out there and there's, there's Julie Reiner and Audrey Saunders and Charlotte Voisey sitting next to each other. Right. It's, come on, what am I doing? Over here I got Don Lee and Phil Ward and Jim Meehan and Simon Ford and Jacques Bazinehood and and the people running the, the back of house was, you know, it was Willie Shine and Aisha Sharp and Andy right. Seymour and Leo DeGroff. <laughs> and I'm like, who are we? Yeah, what what we, have we done? What have we created here? <laughs> We've uh, created something that's amazing and it's, uh, you. you know, it's somewhat of a, um, you know, golden ticket almost for those who go through and pass. Um, and, and, you know, uh, like I, I've never spoken to anyone who took Bar Five Day and regretted it, not one. Um, and I've spoken to many, many people who've taken it. Thank you. That's good to hear. Um, yeah. Uh, so you're doing, you know, great things out there. Um, we need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to talk about this bottle of mezcal that's on the table. Oh your, yeah. Your association with um, Del Magüe, as well as um, you just mentioned Perno Ricard. So we're going to talk about the Perno Ricard uh, purchase. Let's do that. And then uh, maybe we'll talk about uh, other stuff like I don't know CBD. We'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. 
Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back at the, uh, on the Speakeasy here in Heritage Radio Network with uh, Steve Olson as our guest. We've been talking about Bar uh, Five Day, the course that he created with a bunch of luminaries. Uh, we've been talking about some wine and education in general, uh, your career, and how it spanned a bunch of years, and how that's still, frankly, kind of a new thing. You know, we're still, as bartenders, I think, in this gray zone where we're starting to realize that, like, this isn't just something I'm going to do for four years to get me through college. This is something I might do for 40 years. Um, which is it what, is a new which, thing. Which is, uh, it's still relatively it's new. It's an old say, thing that's back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which we is, all know from the history that we research, but it is relatively new. And I, just if I may, real okay. quick, we went right to Bar 5 Day, but I should say, I, I said, if, you want, if you're a young bartender, you don't step right into Bar 5 Day. There is a program for those guys. Yeah. The Bar Smarts. Of I course. Mean, if you, if you want to be a bartender, study for Bar Smarts or start even with Bar Starts, which takes a young person and tells them how to stand and how to talk and the ways to behave behind a bar that we take for granted. But we were talking about this before the show even started, and I will say this. To any young bartender out there, understand that not only does it take a lot of work, but there's no real school that teaches you how to tend a bar. Right. If you want to be good at this, you get behind a, a bar with uh, guys like you. You get behind the bar and, and you work with a mentor. Get somebody to take you under their wing, maybe two or three different people over time, work in different bars, learn different systems, and learn how to be nice to people. Because if you're not hospitable, <laughs> forget the rest of it. Yeah, it's all I out. can teach. I wonder, I wonder sometimes if that's a skill or if that's something you're either born with or you're not. You you're know? born with it, period. Yeah. I, I am absolutely, you know, here's my attitude about that. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of my career. Danny... When we did Gramercy, we Danny Meyer, this is a, a tribute to this amazing guy, he sat in on every callback interview that I did. Like, I, I screened them all and stuff, but anybody I was even interested in, Danny sat with me and met every single one of them. Because our attitude is you hire heart. I can teach, we can teach, almost anybody that has a, an, the proper work attitude. But if you've got a work attitude, we can teach you how to make drinks. Yeah, it's just mechanics at it, that point. It is. You know, you're teaching recipes. You're memorizing. You know, you're teaching techniques. You're teaching a lot of that stuff. But you can't teach people how to be nice, to your point. You just, you look for people who are already nice. Yeah. You look for people who like to be nice, who like to share, who like to make people happy. And then you cultivate those people. And so if you're one of those people sitting out there going, I think I could do this, my suggestion is go get a job as a bar back and see if you can handle it first. If you can, your, whoever you're bar backing for is going to see it in you and say, let me show you some stuff. Work your ass off. Be the hardest working bar back on the planet. You might get a job as a bartender. Right. And if you do, then work your ass off there and look for the, the opportunity to grow and then maybe consider taking bar smarts because then maybe you've got a chance to take it to the next level. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you this because yeah. it, it, it's, it's interesting how like this is, this is always going to be the best way to teach people how to bartend. I think it's like, you have to be, you have to be in it. You have to learn from people who are doing it. You have to do it. it it's, it's on the job training, which seems like it's becoming less and less of a thing in school in this country. It's, I feel like every year it's more and more like, is this going to be on the test? No, well then I don't give a shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> is that something that you've had to struggle against more? Cause you've been doing this for about what, three decades now? Like, yeah. has it become harder? More to get people to appreciate the nuance and be like, no, it's not, it's more than just memorizing a recipe. It's getting a grasp of the complete picture and then executing it with all of that stuff in mind. It's a great question. I, I, you know, I am the eternal optimist as you well know me, <laughs> but to me, I really feel that we have come full circle. I think we, I think we went to this place where people were really obsessed with, you know, 
their house-made bitters and how they did this and telling the customer how they do that and looking down and you know we were we were developing this culture of bartenders who were just nerds who were had no social skills which is really a scary thing you know because it requires a lot of both as you guys both know i feel very strongly that today bartenders have come full cycle and we are coming back to this wanting to know everything wanting to understand everything not because i want to yeah we're geeks we there are a lot of us out here that are just geeks and we want to know it but it's more i want to know it so i can do it right i want to understand it better so that i can do it right and then i'm going to focus on just the party because that's what we do every night yeah we i want to know a party every, every night. night yeah, yeah. <laughs> i want to know it so that i can do it expertly and do it without having to think too much about it so that then i can host the party exactly that's exactly it. And know. I also want to know it as much as I can know it so that when that one out of a hundred guests comes in and wants to know it too, I can tell them. Exactly. I can share that information. That's and, what it, that's what it is for But you don't me. offer it. Let them want it. You got to ask for it. Yeah. yeah. If the guests ask for it, then you go there. We have a thing in, in my training is that I don't allow any of my people to use what I call geek terminology. All right. We talk about food. We talk about texture. We talk about the weather. We talk about news. We talk about fun. And then when somebody uses a geek word, then you're allowed to explain it or, or work backwards. Sure. So if somebody says, you know, oh, I want, um, I want an oaky Chardonnay, you, well, you know what that means. So now you can go back and use that to describe it. But if you describe it as an oaky Chardonnay and somebody doesn't know what that means, and this is old school, but, you know, nobody wants to chew on a two by four before their dinner, you right. know? So what, don't use that word. Use words that they can understand, like... Everyone knows what rich or velvet or soft means. Everybody knows what cherries and butterscotch and vanilla taste like. So use food terms and use texture terms to describe things. Yeah. You earn their trust, which is the single most important part of our job, right? Indeed. Indeed. Once you earn their trust, then you can take them on the journey that you were hoping to show them in the first place. Right. You don't want to intimidate them with our kind of, not necessarily secret language, but our language. I don't want people on the floor saying things like, Oh, we're 86 that. No. No. Exactly. I'm sorry. There's an exception on the menu tonight where, you know, the, the scallops, right? So we don't say we're 86 the scallops. That's our language. Yes. So we don't want to bring them into that language too early or too quickly. If they identify themselves as someone who speaks that language, then get right on board. Yeah, then you jump in. And also, that's a clue. Yeah. If they speak your language, oh, maybe they're in the business. Maybe that's somebody you need to nurture a little bit differently. Exactly. You know? Maybe I can show you a Always time. looking for clues, right? Yeah. Isn't that well, what I mean, we that's, do? that's what research is, right? That's what it is. Uh, the clue I'm looking for next, though, is uh, what's in this big green bottle on the table? Uh, yeah, so uh, let's what, get educated and, about this. And let's, right, let's talk, talk about, about these it. little um, ceramic dishes. Okay, what are we well, about to do here? We're about to taste some mezcal. Um, for, for those who don't know me or Ron Cooper or Del Maguey, um, in the mid-90s, Ron Cooper decided, as an artist, found these um, indigenous peoples making unbelievable liquid art. He called it liquid art. He saw it as an art form, and he wanted to share it with his friends. And I met up with Ron very shortly after he started, tasted these mezcals that he had found. They were mind-blowing. Now, I, you may even remember, at that time... I was traveling all over the world trying to share with bartenders, mostly sommeliers, chefs, people in the trade mostly, um, education about agave spirits because to me they were artisanal, they were special. I had a, I had a freaking tequila and mezcal list at Christopher's in the late 80s. You know? yeah. People thought we were insane at that time. And, and, and I, this was my, one of my major passions. So when I tasted Ron's juice, I was out of my mind. It's like, who are you? Where did you come from? And Ron said, I'm an artist, man. You know, I want to share it with the world. And, and he did. And I, I, you know, Jimmy Yeager, my, one of my very closest friends in the world who has Jimmy's up in Aspen. If you haven't been there, you need to go. Jimmy and my wife and I went to Oaxaca without Ron to one of his palenques. He set it up for us because we just needed to see the source. I been to a lot of mezcal villages i'd seen a lot of stuff i'd never seen anything quite like this never met any people like this but i most importantly i'd never tasted liquid like this so shortly thereafter jimmy and i sat down with ron and we said we're gonna help you we're gonna help you because you're doing something so magical and so special and it quickly became a mission for us to protect this ancient form of distillation and preserve the culture of these Native American people up in the mountains of Oaxaca that were making this incredible liquid art. And we 
just one bartender at a time, one sommelier at a time, one chef at a time, one consumer at a time. We just shared it with people until they started to understand how magical it was. And as you guys know, right now, Mezcal is the fastest growing category in the world. It just completely, well, it's been 24 years for us. You know, it it takes, someone told me recently, it it takes a decade to be an overnight success. Uh, I think think that's a very conservative estimate. Yeah, maybe two decades, I think. (laughs) In our case, uh, almost two decades. We've We've been doing it for 24 years. We were honored and thrilled 11 years after we started in 2006 when a few other companies got in the business and started bringing Mezcal into the country for the very first time, sure. we were the only ones. Well, there were a couple of industrial ones with worms in them, but we don't talk about that. Yeah. And then in 2009, another couple friends came in, and then 2010, we launched Vita. That changed the world. The game. Yeah. yeah. And then by 2012, you know, there were maybe 12 or 15 companies and it was really cool and, and they were we were all kind of working together. We were all trying to build this thing. Do you know how many Mezcal companies were imported into the United States last year? No idea. Almost 200. Yeah. Oh, wow. And do you know how many are registered down there? Like over a 1,000. Right. It's mind-blowing you know, from us in sure. 1995. Anyway, the bottom line is um, I brought this bottle to share with you guys because it's you guys. And this is a, an <laughs> ancestral Mezcal. It's made in clay stills. It's made way out in the Mixteca Alta. Um, it's actually, the agave hearts are roasted underground like they all of ours are, right. and uh, very traditional. Um, and then they're beaten with wooden mallets in a hollowed out tree trunk, <laughs> then <laughs> fermented in open wooden tanks with ambient yeast, and then distilled in a clay still. And I brought this one because it's a 2014, so it's a collector's item. And I brought it because we just released, it's San Jose Rio Minas. And um, it's it's a long story, but to get to this Palenque, it's you know eight hours outside of Oaxaca City, on dirt roads that you know. I mean, it's probably as a crow flies a hundred kilometers, but it takes that long. You have to walk across a chicken wire and rebar suspension bridge that holds one person at a time across a raging torrent of a river, then hike two kilometers back into the woods to get to the Palenque. So every leader has to be carried out across this bridge. Then we, <laughs> so we haven't like had this mess. It is Indiana Jones all the way. That's Ron Cooper. That is Ron Cooper all the way. The adventure. You know, he says, "You don't find Mezcal, Mezcal finds you," and that's how we found this guy. And yeah, you can't find so, Mezcal with all those hurdles, and right? Like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I mean, we heard about it because somebody told us about this guy, and we tasted his Mezcal and went to find him. You know. Anyway, um, it's a it's a sad but happy story. The sad part is that. Um, um, it's a it's a husband and wife with three kids, and the mother passed away from cancer. Mm. Um, and for a few years, Roberto didn't make any mezcal because he was taking care of his wife, and mm. you know it was really sad. And then after she passed away, he's just been heartbroken, and he hasn't been able to get back to making mezcal. And his sons came home, and his daughter stayed home, and they all got him together, and they convinced him to do a roast, and it kind of brought him out of his depression and so we have recently finally gotten a roast from him and we will be releasing that roast in a couple of years because they have to sit sure you know and age in glass but in in honor of that um we released the 2015 that we were holding the whole time because we were scared what if we never got any more mezcal from him you know right that just came out in the united states and I just had a 2014 sitting in my wine cellar, so I thought I'd bring it and share it with you guys so Man, that you could see you. what happens to these magical elixirs when they've been aged in. This one sits in, in actually in clay for several months, and then we transfer it into glass demijohns, just like in cognac. Yeah, sure, you know? of course. So it doesn't change Bombons. a lot. Exactly. Um, but it does change. It does definitely, it's affected by the age. So... San Jose Rio Minas. It's one of our single village mezcals in the Vino de Mezcal series. Um, and I, I wanted to also talk about the fact that we are releasing right now something called Boca del Cerro. And Boca del Cerro, the mouth of the mountain. It's the first mezcal we, that, from a campo, a field that we planted. So this goes back to the mid-2000s that we planted. 2004, I think we planted it. And after nine years um, of, 
of being ill-tended, shall we say. The plants were small and strangled and suffering. And, you know, the agave plant, the maguey, is a survivor. And they were ready. They needed to be harvested, but they weren't big. And the normal producer wouldn't want them. But Faustino at Chichicapa said, you know, it, it's not about the size. It's about the quality. These could have great flavors. And so he made mezcal with them. And it turned out to be one of the greatest mezcals we ever tasted. Um, we finally are launching it this year. It's been sitting in glass for four years. Mm-hmm. We used it as our 20th anniversary celebration when we had all our palenqueros come in for the big celebration. Right. And we were going to release it, and we've been meaning to, and but it had to be right. So we've got about a 1,000 liters, and the whole purpose of this release is for charity. In our villages, uh, most of them are Zapotec. They're all indigenous, um, different tribes, but in this case, Zapotec. And the Zapotec language is an unwritten language. It's a spoken language only and guttural sounds. And and um, it's being lost. It's not taught in the schools. It can't be, you know, um, Mexican laws and so forth. We won't get into that right now. Anyway, we have a project that we're working on where we worked with Pernod Ricard and with Heifer International, uh, hired some maestros, teachers, created a textbook with phonetics for Zapotec. Mm. And we did a, a, a test program in the schools where we're teaching kids how to read and write their native language so it's not lost. And it was very successful, so we're now taking it out into other Zapotec villages. So the Boca del Cerro that's coming out, which is Mouth of the Mountain, made by Chichicapa, our single vineyard, a single campo, as we would call it, from Teotitlan del Valle, the first field that we planted in our home village, too, up on the side of this mountain. Um, a lot of touchstones right there. A lot, yeah. And it's it's $200 a bottle, and you say, whoa, for Mezcal. But here's the cool thing. Out of every bottle, 30% of that. So that's why we raised the price. It's going directly. Not not like after the proceeds, a portion goes to some charity. No, no. 30% of it. So all the profit is going to the this this program that we started to bring Zapotec language into the schools. We do a lot of things like that at Del Maguey. We aren't very good at publicizing what we do because, you know, in our world, Just that's... Just do good work. It's way you're supposed to do business. Just do good work. You're supposed to take yeah. care of the people. You're supposed to take care of... The, you know, look at this. We don't make mezcal. We're like an art gallery, and they're the artists. To us... They're the heroes. Yeah. And so we put them up front. And as a, in turn, over time, these beautiful things have happened. You know, clean water and electricity and food and homes and trucks. And now Education. the kids are going to college. And yeah. um, kids are coming back from the United States. We don't have to worry about Trump's wall anymore because they're going home and staying home, you know, and, and making money. And they have a family business. And Things are changing for the good. I mean, there's a lot of things changing down there that aren't so good, but this is the good stuff. And um, so anyway, every bottle that we sell, all of that money goes directly into that charity, our charity with with Heifer and so forth. That's outstanding. Yeah, it's cool. Let's sip on this and talk to me real quick uh, and our listener. Why why are we serving it in a little ceramic dish? Oh, thanks. Yeah, we call them copitas or little cups, you know, just like like in sherry, believe it or not. Yep. Hmm. And... There's a, there's a good reason for it. Um, in Oaxaca, when you drink mezcal, you drink it out of a jicara, a gourd, right? right. And it has a shape, um, you know, like a half circle, a semicircle. So Ron, knowing we couldn't bring gourds in, uh, went to... It's another opportunity for us to support another village. Yeah. We work with 12 families in 12 different villages. One of those villages makes these clay. They're not a mezcal-producing village. They're a, a pottery village. So he designed this with one of the producers in that village to make these cups. We give them away. And we want people to drink out of them, not only because it's ceremonial, but because it actually makes the mezcal taste the way it does in that jicara. Instead of drinking out of like the Riedel tequila glass, which only puts the alcohol right in your nose, you drink it out of here and the alcohol is spread out and it puts the terroir, the fruit, the earth right front and center where it belongs. So as you know, this is a ritual beverage. So I'm going to do a little ritual here. We make a cross on the ground for Mother Earth and our ancestors with gratitude because without Mother Earth, we can't have the bounty to make this. And without our ancestors, we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't know how to make it. And I'm blessing your studio right now. I'm so... Isn't that beautiful? Thankful, yes. I'm happy to do it. And then in Zapotec, we would say something like, every village has their own version, but we say, Stigi Bayu. 
Stigi Bayou is a toast, and it's Zapotec, and it's like any toast, to your health, but it's much bigger. It's to your health, to the health of your friends, and to the life of the planet that we share. All that in one word. Do you understand now why this language has to be preserved? Has to survive, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, And their culture. Stigi Bayou. Stigi Bayou. Wait till you taste this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so wow. creamy and so rich, like, isn't it? That's amazing. <laughs> Mouth filling and grassy wow. and the the earthiness so of this soft thing. latent smoke that's not uh, overpowering. Now, what if I told you that that was forty nine percent alcohol? Wouldn't believe you. No, never. No. In a million years. So right? easy drinking, not like burning my chest or my face off. One hundred percent sustainable, hundred percent organic. The only ingredients are agave. Period. You know, they add local water from their river when they do the fermentation only. Other than that, that's all it is. It's remarkable. And and remember, we we take it from them right out of the still and put it in the bottle. Well, we, we sit on them usually in glass because that's how they do it. Or in clay, depending on how they do it. Um, it's an ancient, ancient process, and our mission is to make sure that it never goes away. To preserve the ancient process of the making of the mezcal, to preserve the language that's dying and disappearing, like you're ever the educator and the pres- you know the preservationist of these things. And I think it's important work you're doing, and maybe even more important than we, we currently or you currently realize, right? Like if this language is to disappear, then possibly some of these techniques would disappear and this thing would disappear. God, that would be... The, well, that would mean I failed in my mission. And, and honestly, that's why I've diverted so much of my energy and attention towards this, is that, you know, as I've gotten older, um, the, all the projects I work on are projects that I, you know, I have an interest in, that I'm involved in, that I'm really passionate about, as they always have been. But more and more, I've gravitated towards this because I know that... We are together, you know, as a community, able to do some real good here. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure that when we put in internet into Santo Domingo Alboratus this week, that it was the best thing that we could have done. I know they need that to come into the new age. I'm not sure I love the idea that kids can now sit around watching TV and, you know, surfing the internet. But we all know how important it is that they are connected, that they have that. And that's well, something that we've done. Access information, in, you know. We've done it in so many of our villages. Another thing we're doing is, you know, uh, digital libraries. You know, building a library and bringing books to a mountain village is brutal. But bringing a computer and a half a dozen um, tablets and a library, a digital library with 65,000 books in it, that can be done. Flip on the switch. Yeah, and that's what we're doing in our villages because we can turn that really quickly. Uh, You know, bringing bees back to to Oaxaca is huge. We're, we're doing that in all of our villages. Reforestation, sustainable agriculture, sustainable... Um, you, the, the fermentation and distillation process creates a lot of waste. Yeah. It's organic waste, but it's waste, and it can be really, really harmful. For centuries, these people have been doing it naturally because they're only making a small amount right. and they can handle it. But we're asking them to make more. And that's one of the things that we're very, very careful about. In our villages where we're making wild agaves and stuff, people are always like, you can't use wild agave, it's not sustainable. It's like, do you really think we would ask them to make more than they know is sustainable? We would never do that. But the industry is asking for more. Vita, we're asking for more because that's what we need for our cocktails and so forth. And so it is our obligation to be on the cutting edge. And just because they say, no, it's okay to put it in the river, no, it's not. If I put Vinasa in the river, what about the village below me? What about the 10 villages below me? What about the fact that eventually it gets to, to the Pacific Ocean, you know, and it's not that far away? Right. It's our duty because we have learned this. We've seen it. We, we have experience globally to figure it out locally with this particular product, with this particular environment, with this particular geography and say, how can we organically, sustainably process this and use it. So we've been working on this really hard for a really long time, and we feel like we've come up with some amazing answers. Not us personally, but us working with engineers, with environmental scientists, with architects, with people who care, and with other palenques. There are other companies out there that care also. We're not the only ones. And we're trying to collaborate to say, what can we do to make sure we don't destroy this place? 
What can we do to keep the agave sustainable? What can we do to support these people so they can continue living the way that they've lived but with a better life? And that their process and their culture and their art form is preserved forever. Right. Um, and that's become my life work, if you will. And, I, and I love it. It's amazing, Stephen. We're so honored to have you on here and share this with us and share all your information with us. Um, I feel like there's so many things we didn't even get to talk about today. Uh, I know we were going to talk about CBD with your new, uh, what's yeah. the name of the company? Cloudwater. Cloudwater. Thanks for, la- thanks for letting me make that plug. Yeah, Cloudwater <laughs> is a, a CBD-infused sparkling waters and tonics, right, that yeah. you're coming up with? I, it's I'm, delicious. I, I'm excited to try some of those. <laughs> and um, it makes you feel so good, yeah. and it's all natural. <laughs> and we're going to start putting them in cocktails soon. We yeah. already are, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work with Jay Rieger, because Ryan maybe and I are good friends, um, but we'll you know, basically what I'm asking is, I got to have you come back. You going to come back? I would love to come back and talk about all those things and a lot more. We do have a lot of catching up to do. Well, you're, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, but that's got to be it for this week's uh, Speakeasy. Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, tune in next week for whoever's next. But uh, man, Steve, what a great trip having you in here. Thank you so much. Steve Bayo, buddy. Steve Bayo to everyone out there. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country Want more of the Speakeasy? Follow us and ask questions on Instagram at Speakeasy Podcast or on Twitter at Speakeasy Radio. You can find Damon at Damon Bolte, and you can find me at Creative Drunk on all platforms. Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and give us a star rating, five if possible. If you're visiting New York City or a resident, stop by the studio and hang out with us during an episode. Reach out beforehand to make sure we'll be here. We'd love to see you. And please support our show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart to donate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.